Oh my gosh. <laughs> Kathy, we are just crushing Kathy, I feel like I feel like you judge me. I do. Oh. <laughs> like in Jesus' name or just generally? In just in Jesus' name. What's gonna help name. you get through this intro? In Jesus' uh, name. All right. Uh, oh well. So anyway. Well, on this week's show, we're going to be Wait, talking. Hey, can I stop real quick? Yeah, we didn't introduce ourselves. Oh, that's right. We just started talking and laughing at Clay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Okay. Welcome to the Fascinating Podcast, episode 204, and I am Kathy Kong. I'm Matt Michalotis. I'm Clay Morgan. And I'm J.R. Forsteros. And on this week's show, we're going to be talking about how to reframe injustices of the past with a heart of wisdom with our guest, Adrian Pei. You're going to love him. Uh, but first, let's talk about our story of the week Hashtag him too, also known as what not to do on social media as a parent. <laughs> Wait, so this isn't like a him sing? No, not it's him. It's him too. Yeah. Like me too, right? Oh. Right. But as in him, as in H I M, not H Y M N. Okay. Yeah, the, the more common spelling of him, Clay. Just, I'm a big fan so, of homonyms. Just wanted to so check how in. did this particular hashtag get started? So what uh, caught on was a post by a mother, a woman who posted a picture of her son with the caption, this is my capital M-Y son. He graduated number one in boot camp. He was awarded the USO award. He was number one in A school. He is a gentleman who respects women. He won't go on solo dates due to the current climate of false sexual accusations by radical feminists with an axe to grind. I vote, also in all caps, hashtag him too, which did not... With a picture. Yes, with a picture of her son. And it garnered quite the response, probably not what she was expecting, which was a whole lot of funny memes and responses with pictures of people and their faux sons. (laughs) I saw saw Norman Bates. I saw Buffalo Bill. uh, I saw Jack Torrance from The Shining. And, oh, man, they were just... I saw the son of our solar system. This is my son. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, He doesn't go on solo dates due to the fact that he burns them up. (laughs) Oh, it was so funny. It was so funny. And then eventually um, the brother (laughs) jumps on because he recognizes that his brother is trending on Twitter because of his mom's ridiculous tweet. And he um, put out there, I'm a mixture of laughing hard and feeling bad for him. Hashtag him too, John Hansen at Dancing John Hansen. Um, <laughs> and his mom's original tweet is pulled off 
I'm assuming she deleted it or someone who loves her. Or her, her. kids made her delete it. Right. Delete it, yeah. Like someone loves her enough to pull it off. And then I think her Twitter was shut down too, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So. <laughs> like well, it. and then finally the actual, the actual, the kid in the picture was, he joined Twitter, right? Just to, just to clear the air. Oh, yes. And he, I love, I'm going to read his tweet because yeah. I thought it was great. Yeah. He said, that was my mom. Sometimes the people we love do things that hurt us without realizing it. Let's turn this around. I respect and hashtag believe women. I never have and never will support hashtag him too. I'm a proud Navy vet, cat dad, and ally. Also, Twitter, your meme game, meme game is on point. <laughs> and then he put a picture of himself just like the one his mom had put up, but not in his Navy outfit. Yeah. One of my and favorite. His handle on Twitter is that was my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys see the one with Rick Astley? Oh, yes. No. This is my son. He was number one on the charts. He won't go on solo dates even though he never gave up, let you down, run around or deserted you, make you cry, say goodbye, tell a line or hurt you. Oh, wow. The internet is like a meme of itself now. It oh. is. Amazing. Um, Clay, you bringing up Rick Astley makes me – Think of that time I rickrolled you in real life. That's true. That did happen. But I feel like we've all won now because Foo Fighters at a recent show in England had Rick Astley actually come out and they played Never Gonna Let You Down with Rick Astley on stage. That's pretty great. It was amazing. Uh, so at, we're talking to Adrian Pay today and Matt, you know Adrian pretty well, right? Yeah. Adrian and I have been friends for several years. Can you, can you share a little bit about him to kind of get us ready for the interview? Yeah. So Adrian and I first met, we worked for the same Christian nonprofit and he worked in a different branch than me, but he's been doing ministry for a lot of years. Uh, and now he's an organizational consultant and leadership trainer who speaks and writes about cross-cultural dynamics and ethnicity related topics. And he's here to talk with us about a topic that is part of his book, which just came out recently. It's called The Minority Experience, Navigating Emotional and Organizational Realities. So please welcome Adrian Pay. Hey, Adrian, welcome to the Fascinating Podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Oh, we're so glad to have you. So, Adrian, a lot of times with our first-time guests especially, we like to ask a question about what fascinates you like generally through your life? Is there something that has been a hobby or an interest or just recently? Uh, is there something that has caught your attention in the world? Yeah, I mean, I, well, actually, so one of my big interests throughout uh, my life has been different board games, like strategy games, things like that. Oh. So, yeah, I grew up playing, let's see, like, well, chess, Chicago. I even yes. played by myself one time which was odd <laughs> but uh i was trying to figure out like optimal strategies so uh that kind of thing and then more recently uh played like pandemic i don't know if you're familiar with the cooperative board game oh yeah format yep so pandemic legacy my wife jenny and i played that and that was pretty fun because it involves like you can manipulate the board you write diff you, new rules come up and you write you could write things on the board and things like that so that was pretty fun. So I've always kind of enjoyed strategy. And now the collaborative part is kind of interesting because it's like, you know, so, sometimes like people can be competitive and feel like if it's not competitive, then it's not fun. But I feel like they kind of designed some of these collaborative board games to still be challenging. So I, that's kind of something I've enjoyed. That's great. Adrian, I can relate to trying to play Stratego by myself 
I'm not the only one. <laughs> no, I my sister wouldn't wouldn't play sometimes, and it was always so disappointing because I knew where all the bombs were. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Clay. <laughs> um, I used to play Battleship by myself. Really? It was what? No, no. <laughs> I never played Battleship by myself. That doesn't make any oh my sense. Gosh. <laughs> Call out like B four, and then oh, and okay. I, and I'd turn around like, no. How does he know where all my boats are? <laughs> um, I did play chess by myself sometimes, but that no. works. Yeah, I did that too, and I used to kind of study some of the uh, the openings or whatever. Oh, but then yeah. it was like, I don't know if you felt the same way, but it's like all that research has been done about the openings and it's all about memorizing like optimal, like what people have done. And then it kind of becomes like more about have you memorized it? than like, can you think creatively? I don't know. That was my experience with that. So wow, that kind of turned me off a little bit, but I'm kind of afraid to play chess with you now, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I haven't played in a while. I'd get smoked by you probably, but well, this, awesome. this interview is going to be like an all time chess match. So starting <laughs> off, Adrian, can you tell us uh, what is the high-level pitch for your book? Can you introduce it for our audience? Sure. So the book is called The Minority Experience, Navigating Emotional and Organizational Realities. I want to make sure I got the title right <laughs> for a second. I, like, <laughs> but I should know the, the, name, the title of this book. So the book is really about how being a minority is not just about numbers, but it's about deeper emotional and sociological factors. So I outlined the minority experience in three categories, pain, power, and the past. So pain meaning that we need to go deeper than just head knowledge and cultural competency. Power meaning we need to focus on the gap between majority and minority groups and how everyone is not on equal ground. And the past meaning that history shapes our reactions to you know, current events far more than we, we often realize. So that's kind of what the book's about. And I'd say the audience of the book is really minorities who have wrestled in any way with finding their place and their voice in this country or in the organization. But I think it's also majority culture leaders who want to better understand the emotional side of what it's like to be a minority. So one of the things I was really interested in is, is that last bit that you said there, Adrian. Um, like when I, and this probably reveals way more about my whiteness than I'm comfortable doing on the air, but here we go. Um, like when I, when I first saw the title of your book and Matt was telling me what it was about, uh, I, I sort of baseline assumed you wrote it for someone like me, like a, a, a white leader of a majority culture organization to, to better understand the experiences of the minority persons in the organization that I'm leading. Uh, and that's like a, like a thousand percent. That is definitely something that your book accomplishes. But at, uh, when your book first came out, and I saw all of the different kinds of people who were sharing about it, um, I was I was uh, really uh, I guess I was really surprised at like how many um, minority per, uh, persons said that like they, the the sentiment they shared was this book made me feel so much less alone and. That was something I think that was a really just a further eye opener for me was how how isolated minority persons often feel in majority culture. Uh, and so your book uh, really, in this case, is for everyone. Like it doesn't matter if you're a majority person in a majority culture like me 
or a minority person who's in a majority culture. Um, this scene, this is a book that seems to be resonating across the board. Is that, is that something, I mean, again, that's, that's been my perspective, uh, since the book has been out for a little bit now, is that something you've experienced? Yeah, and I, I actually been a little surprised by that. Maybe I should admit that, but, um, you know, when I, you know, when I wrote it, you know, I didn't, you know, it's kind of wanted to share my own story, honestly, and, um, hope that it resonates with the people. But, you know, even just this morning, I got a message from um, an African-American person I d- that I don't know, actually. And they said that uh, it was just really healing for them to read it. And I was just floored. I was just kind of like, wow, I just uh, it's it, it's just been amazing to see that uh, different people from different minority groups have kind of been personally identifying with it. And I don't know if it's because I just said, here's my story, you know, and then I also shared a lot. I tried to share a lot of other stories from other um you know, some lesser known stories from history, you know, from Native American, from uh, Latino, Latina history, you know, from African American history, as well as Asian American history. And I don't know if some of that made a difference for people, or they they just personally identify with uh, some of the things in the book. So it's been one of the reactions that I've heard very often. So I'm, I'm very honored to hear that and, and grateful. Uh, well, we wanted to do a deep dive into uh, one chapter of your book, uh, which is the chapter on reframing the past with uh, a heart of wisdom. So maybe to set this up, can you just give us a little bit of um, uh, understanding like wh- why you use the past as a framework and what like just so we have a little bit of an idea of what you're going to be doing in this chapter we're talking about? Does that make sense? Because that was one of the three lenses, right, that you use. Yeah, and I think that, you know, so – I think personally, you know, I started with really thinking about my own story as a minority in terms of the emotional experiences that I had. So some of the feeling kind of, you know, alone or invisible or doubting myself or uh, feeling worn down uh, by some of the pressures of being in this country or in an organization. But then as I kind of studied, you know, looked at history books and read autobiographies of minorities from the past, I discovered there was a lot of common themes and so I was, it got me really interested in history and thinking through what's new and what's not new. And the more I studied history, the more I saw that, wow, there's actually a lot of themes that have existed for many years and areas that we think have improved that haven't improved or areas that haven't improved that we wouldn't be surprised by. So that the past became a really important filter to look at. And then it also helped me understand more about uh, even what's happening today in terms of sometimes you see like these debates about race and whatnot and current events. And very often, uh, you know, if, why is we have this question of like, why is that person reacting that way? You know, and kind of like often I would see like when you look at history, it often kind of shares, it, it gives another perspective on maybe some of why people are reacting as strongly as they are. So that's kind of the framework, I guess. Adrian, can you, explain a little bit about how you use that lens of history in your book. And then um, how, how do different people see history differently or do they based on their ethnicity? Yeah. So, you know, um, I think that definitely people, I mean, if we're talking about obviously the difference between majority culture and minorities, it's very different, right? Uh, In the sense that uh, you know, if a Native American looking at 
history would be thinking, wow, you know, this is my, the homeland and driven from, we're driven from our homeland, right? Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who is white would, <laughs> would have a different reality there. And, you know, Asian Americans, there's immigrants as refugees. So I think that history makes a huge difference in terms of how people see things uh, and their, in terms of what actually happened in their people's past. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also like the, you know, I know you, you talk about this a lot too, Kathy, but really, you know, there's, you know, there's white, Eurocentric, what do we learn, right? In schools or through media or whatever, right? Like there's Eurocentric history. So it depends on what, what version we learned of things, right? Is it Columbus Day? Is it Indigenous Peoples Day? You know, that, that kind of thing. Right, right. So with that, I mean, what did you learn about how you see and perceived history? And was there something about Asian American history that you had not known or were interacting with differently in the process of writing this book? Yeah. um, You know, history, like, I think that growing up in this country, I think, you know, as a kid, you know, you, you, you learn the, the material and, and you don't question it necessarily. <laughs> Maybe some people do, but for me, like I just kind of list, I learned it. And so I learned uh, a very Eurocentric history, didn't learn much about Asian American history at all. And didn't even know that there was a lot of Asi- Asians who came uh, to the United States in the 1800s, mm-hmm. you know, on the West coast and part of the, the gold rush and whatnot. And, and some of the challenges they faced and so I think that I did learn kind of more of a Eurocentric version of history. And then I think over time, I've come more in touch with understanding, you know, not only Native Americans, but, you know, uh, the history of Central America and, you know, like Latinos, Latinas who, you know, their territories were annexed and, 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 and what's, whatnot. Uh, I think the other thing is that, like, you know, my mother um, was raised in Vietnam. So she went to a, a French school there because, you know, the French colonized Vietnam. Yes. And so that was part of her experience. And then, you know, the Vietnam War happened and she came over before the war happened. But uh, I think that the Vietnam War was another big one that I didn't understand uh, where I guess in 1964. So there was only like 600 or so Vietnamese living in the United States. Mm-hmm. And then after the Vietnam War, there was a huge number of people who came came over. But I didn't really understand kind of the power dynamics between countries in world history where it's like, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union had the Cold War, all the tension. So it often played itself out in other countries. Right. Like the, like the Cuban Missile Crisis or, and I guess Vietnam. So you had like, I guess the, uh, the two governments, the one backed by the Soviet Union and China in the North. And then you had one backed by the United States and South Vietnam. And so then when the, the Southern Vietnamese government collapsed, then, you know, 100,000 or so Vietnamese were evacuated from the country to, you know, in flight from the North Vietnamese. So a lot of those people who came over to the United States didn't come by choice, so to speak, right? They're right. refugees. Right. Yeah. And then, then they, they come to the United States and they face discrimination and people saying, go back to your home country, right? So it's like, wow, pretty brutal, right? You're, you're driven out and rejected on both shores. So right. it's a, that was a part that I did not understand, I think. Yeah. Harrowing too. I mean, that was a extremely difficult journey for, for at that particular time. Was your, was your mother's passage, um, was she able to do that safely? Do you have like family, how, how does your family history um, come down to you? Yeah. So, 
she actually came over before the war happened. So mm-hmm. it was more of a, a safe passage. It was, she wasn't quite a refugee in the same way. But uh, after, you know, see, her mom didn't really have, uh, you know, sent over the kids one at a time, uh, given the financial resources they had. And so when the war started, her mom was still in Vietnam and actually with one of her other uh, daughters. And, you know, there was a bomb during the war that, that dropped in their backyard that didn't go off, oh. fortunately. But that's how close it came. So, wow, yeah. So in, in, in this chapter, in this part of the book, um, talking about minorities and certainly refugees are a huge part of our conversation today and for the recent generations, you talk about this question this choice that ethnic minorities have to make about assimilating or disengaging. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I think that we have to, you know, as minorities, we have to live in that tension of, you know, kind of between assimilating or disengaging. So, you know, I used to work for uh, an Asian American organization called Epic. And in that group, we tried, we, we called it, I guess, trying to be separate and connected. So I need to stay separate enough to be who I fully am. You know, so I'm not just trying to be like others or conform or please the majority culture. But I also need to be connected enough to those who are different from me so I can be part of the healing of the country. So that's it's a tension we gotta have to live in. And so that's the way I describe it, but not easy to live in that tension. Adrian, does that does that affect the way you look at historic history and your past and, uh, our, well, our past, uh, when you're like, so as a majority culture person, I'm not typically asking the question of assimilation versus disengagement, right? Like I'm, I'm already assimilated. Um, it's my culture. Well, largely that's largely true. Um, but you know, I'm individual, even though I'm majority culture, you know how it is for us, majority culture people. We're all inv- individuals, yes, right? Yes. Yes. You don't you, speak on behalf of all white no, people. We no, know that. Never, I know that. never. No. And if I try to, it makes everyone angry because white people are all individual. Yes. Um, but so what does that do when you're constantly kind of monitoring this balance of assimilation versus disengagement? How does that affect the way you look at the past or how you are able to, uh, I don't know, discern the past? Yeah. It's very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can you give us an example? Like, uh, is, is there something that comes to mind for that? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, like I was just mentioning about, um, you know, let's say I was in that situation as, uh, you know, a Vietnamese refugee who came over where it's like, I didn't come by choice. Right. And in fact, it was kind of like, and it's, you know, let's say even before that the French colonized my country. Right. So it's not like I'm kind of one step removed from, you know, my, you know, having complete autonomy or, you know, dignity in my own uh, culture. Right. And then so I'm kind of driven from that country and then I've come to a new country and then I feel like, wow, um, I'm not really accepted here either. So it's, it, you know, there's really that place of like, where do I really belong? Yeah. And, and how do I reconcile? It, it's challenging because you feel like there's always pressure that's on you. And I mean, like, and I think like, you know, when I think of like, here's an example I think of sometimes is even like, you know, the national anthem protests. I think you guys talked about that in one of your previous shows, right? Pre- kind of yeah. The, yeah. A couple of times. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, I look at that and I'm like, it's such a polarized choice that 
you know, my, for minorities, the injustice and racism, like it's tied to their families, their communities, history and experience, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean they don't love this country. So I'm almost like, don't make people choose between respecting their families and respecting their country. But I feel like the pressure is put on minorities either become completely like us or leave. When in reality, you know, we want to, we have to live in that tension of being separate, but connected. So yeah, that's what I think of. You know, Adrian, in the same chapter and on the other side of that conversation, you you also address uh, white trauma and white fragility. And, uh, you know, I could say as someone who has been trying to wade into these conversations more often with my white uh, community, you don't have to talk for very long with white people uh, before they get really angry. And in fact, I've had, I think like three different race conversations on social media in the past week where someone has said something to the effect of like, why is everyone always trying to make me feel guilty? Or every time this topic comes up, all I feel is guilty. Um, so can you can you talk about white trauma and white fragility, and uh, and then especially like how have you found it helpful to navigate that? Um, because again, I think it's 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 an it's an almost immediate and visceral reaction when we talk about anything like the anthem protest or the refugee crisis. I mean, any, any, anything, right. That involves this kind of stuff. It like, it's almost, it's almost like an instant, uh, instant reaction. So can you talk about those terms and then how the, how they can be helpful in understanding what's happening here? Yeah. I mean, seeing a lot of your uh, social media walls, I feel like you're, you're the experts at handling the situations like that. Um, but uh, I could share a couple of thoughts. I, I think you're right on to say that it's a reaction. It's a, it's an automatic reaction. And sometimes it might even be like a, um, an automatic reaction that, you know, it's almost knee jerk. Right. And it may even come from things that, you know, they don't even realize. So I think for me, like, I mean, it really depends on the context that I'm in. Right. So if I'm on social media, it's one context. If I'm, sitting across the table from a friend, right, who's talking to me about how they feel about these things. It's a different kind of setting, right, where, you know, I think very often, I think, Kathy, I feel like you write about this in your book, you know, about kind of like why people are on the internet or social media, you know, how they, what they, the deep needs they have as humans, right? Right. And, you know, whether it's affirmation or whatever it is. So I think sometimes in those situations, they they need to express themselves or vent, vent, you know, there's something like really unresolved there, uh, like that, that triggers that for them. And so I think for me, like, it's about really coming to understand what's going on under the surface for a person. And, you know, for me, you know, it's easier if I'm sitting across the dinner table from somebody, right. Where I can listen to them, talk to them, they're a real person. I'm engaging them and, and whatnot. It's a little bit more of a different challenge when you're online and the environment is still like, anxious. And so, so like, you know, there's so much triggers there. Right. So a couple of thoughts. Yeah. I I continually find it uh, maddening when we'll be talking about, and I'm like, I'm like the 5 million and 75th person to make this observation. So this is like (laughs) the least original thing I can contribute, but 
I am finding it incredibly maddening when we'll bring up real traumas that minority persons experience and white people are like, but I feel sad. And it's like, um, okay. Like, I'm sorry you feel sad. Like, we committed genocide against Native Americans. And they're like, I feel guilty. And it's like, well, uh, okay, but like, what should we do? And they're like, I don't like feeling sad. And it's like, uh, yeah, no one likes feeling sad, but we probably like getting genocided less. Can we, I don't know, like these, they're, they're so not comparable in my mind. Um, and yet again, like I think so many, so many people who are, who are not used to having these conversations and not used to considering the experience of, of minority cultures, uh, they can't get past it. It's such, it's such a big hurdle in their minds. Um, that, you know, I had a, I had an experience with this actually in, in 2015 and I was on the phone with JR and Clay multiple times this summer, uh, in, in my organization, which is Adrian's old organization. We were having these large scale conversations about ethnicity, ethnic diversity. What does it mean to, you know, really be together and create a space that is for all people and like different things like that. And I was getting really, really painful, uh, feedback from different people. Um, and one of the people I called, you actually talk about in this chapter is Mark Charles, who's a friend of ours. Uh, he's Navajo. And, uh, I was talking to Mark and he's the first person who ever talked about white trauma with me. And it was so helpful because what, what I kind of, I was so angry. It was one of the first times that I remember really entering in as a white person to being angry about white people's response to, uh, issues of injustice along, uh, racial lines primarily or racial history. And, uh, I was just furious and like, not sure I could handle with it, handle it kind of furious and talking to Mark, he was so helpful. Cause what he said is he said, white trauma is real, uh, and it's real trauma. And what do you do with people who have been through a traumatic experience? And I said, I don't know, be patient with them keep repeating stuff, keep telling them what's true, make sure they know we have a good relationship. He's like, yeah, that's all the stuff you need to keep doing. And like giving more facts isn't going to change that they're in trauma, but you just keep saying the same things and keep encouraging them, telling them that they're in relationship with you and be patient with them. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it was helpful in the sense it didn't make me less angry, but it made me more um, compassionate in that moment, which I wasn't sure I could get to a place of compassion. It was really insightful and helpful for me in that moment. Yeah, that's really, I really resonate with that. And I think that it's normal to, I think having that anger is what I feel too. Right. You know, and then, um, and then often I find that when I've reacted in that anger in that moment with that person, it kind of inflames it even more. And sometimes that's, that's what happens, right? That's okay. Yeah. Right. But yeah, it's not always, but, bad. All right. But, but at the same time, it's like, I think that um, some of that I learned also is, you know, my own journey of accepting that that's where some people are at. And, you know, it doesn't mean that it's okay for them to be where they're at, but can I change the fact that they're going to react that way? You know, there's all there. It's been happening for centuries. You know, yeah. I think that's one thing I learned through studying history was that, man, it's, this is a lot of this stuff is not new. There's been like from the very beginning when, you know, Asian Americans or, uh, you know, came here, there was, uh, there was some really bad stuff happening, you know, just really abuses and discrimination, racism, all that stuff. So it's probably not going to stop too much, but 
like I think trying to understand how I can engage it. Um, I can kind of control what I can control, so to speak. Right. And I do hope that goodness gracious, it stops a little more. (laughs) 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 And, you know, I really appreciated Adrian, how you walk us through the, the different postures that minorities might take towards whites, um, you know, unaware, we're angry and wounded, silent and resigned, duty and pleasing, unity as assimilation, equal and empowered. And you don't um, detail uh, the framework uh, of the five majority culture postures toward ethnic minority ministry. But what I am hearing from this discussion, particularly from the the white dudes here, um, is, is that's how trauma is expressed when that trauma is not acknowledged. And I also find interesting from my perspective as a woman of color, that there is that additional intersection of where gender comes into play and, uh, and how that anger or that guilt is expressed differently sometimes by men and women, whether it's in person or on the internet. Um, but that, that knee-jerk reaction from white men and women is a defensive mechanism. And I think we all just need to realize yeah, that, that's kind of human nature, hmm. even though I don't like it, even though I get very tired of it, it's human nature. And um, again, Adrian, I think you do a great job of pushing readers to think about their own lens and how they've viewed history and how to perhaps view history moving forward in order to enact change. Thanks. Yeah, I love I love to hear your thoughts uh, about the uh, kind of the gender difference. It's really interesting. Uh, I think that you're completely right. It's really understanding your own lens. And Matt, your point about really, you know, like what Mark Charles had said about how would you deal with any kind of trauma, right, situation. I feel that like yeah, that's so key. Like just you know, have you you know like there's I think of times where you know like if you ever met somebody's parents, right, and you realize okay, now I understand why they are the way they are, right? (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you're saying something about parental trauma, which my mom and dad listen every week, and I just want to say, I love you, mom and dad, and I'm doing fine. (laughs) Yeah, but just like, you know, just some of the, even the personalities are, yeah, there could be be trauma there too, right? For sure. sure. Or, you know, you hear about something that people went through in their childhood. Okay, it sounds sounds very trauma-centered now, (laughs) but it helps you give them a deeper understanding of them as a person. Yeah. So I think his, I see history very much the same way. It's just not just individualistically. It's more on a meta level of, you know, families, communities, cultures, where we get a more complete picture of who a person is and what shaped them. And then it helps, helps to engage them sometimes more productively. So I feel like to me, like history, you know, very often it has been very dehumanizing, but I, I think there also is a side where it can humanize conversations as well when we come to understand the bigger picture of people and what they've been through. Yeah. Um, 
So I do have a pressing question after reading this book. Um, are you really related to Bruce Lee? <laughs> yes, I, I didn't lie in the book. <laughs> okay. So how how are you related? Yeah, so uh, my mother and Bruce share the same grandparents. What? What? Wow. That's pretty close. That's very close. It sounds very close, and it is. So at first I thought it was just through marriage, but it turns out it's through blood. So what? I don't know how that impacts me, but <laughs> there was actually this one time, though, I was at a fast food restaurant, and the guy behind the counter called me Bruce, like kind of as a racist joke, right? like, you know, all Asians are related or whatever. Well, yeah. <laughs> and you were like, that's my cousin? Well, well, just for a second, I thought, well, that's pretty offensive. But in this 1% of cases or whatever, I actually am related to Bruce Lee. And I'm I'm proud of him, actually. I'm proud of him. He's actually one of my heroes, so. (laughs) That's so funny. You're like, that would be racist if I wasn't actually related to him. Uh, So maybe by way of wrapping up, since we are talking about Bruce Lee, uh, could you talk about why he's one of your heroes and why, I mean, in the book, it wasn't just name dropping, uh, but like why? Yeah, why? Like why? Why is he one there of was, your heroes in this? Room? There was some name dropping though. I just want to point out that Kathy gets a shout out in this chapter <laughs> yeah. as being an amazing activist that you should keep your eyes on. <laughs> oh dear! All the pressure. All the pressure. I think it's because she changes her shirt every day, and there's always a different message, and you just gotta, you gotta, you gotta stay on top of seeing what that new message is. <laughs> So sorry, Adrian. I, I'll, I'll let you answer Jared's question now. I I love what Kathy's done, and um, and so I just yeah I think for me just uh, admiring people and you know having a chance to point out some of the great work that people are doing in a chapter was uh, something I wanted to do. Um, I'm always there's always a lot more people who are doing great things, so uh, keep updating it. Hopefully, in future versions, if there if there are. Yeah. Uh, but, but as far as <laughs> but as far as Bruce goes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I talked about him as an example of, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of people don't know kind of the cultural, cha- the challenges that he faced in terms of really being, you know, first of all, he did a lot of work to try to, uh, you know, change some of the stereotypes, you know, about, you know, just even having Asian Americans in the media. A lot of people don't know he was born in San Francisco. And so, like, he spoke in a lot of interviews with people about stereotypes and things like that and, you know, the way that people looked at Asians. He also, uh, you know, he had a cross-cultural relationship, marriage with Linda uh, Emery. And he faced a lot of pressure, you know, obviously um, from, from whites, you know, to kind of like stereotypes and, and who he was. But he faced a lot of pressure from uh, the Chinese community as well to not engage people who were uh, different. Uh, one of his first uh, pupils was an African-American who he made a teacher. So he did a lot of cutting edge stuff in that area. And he's also very philosophical. And so like a lot of his talks are really interesting, just the way he looks at things. And, and so I, uh, and he's cool. So <laughs> I love his movies. So, <laughs> so that's kind of why, uh, yeah, why he's one of my heroes. That's awesome. Well, Adrian, we have had so much fun having you on the show. We're about out of time. So we're going to do two things. One want to hear where we can find you online. And then two, we're going to talk about what's been fascinating us this week. So Adrian, where can our listeners find you online if they want to connect or have questions or want to learn more about your book? So I am on Twitter at Adrian Pay and uh, Facebook as well. Uh, and if you want to find out about my book, it's on Amazon at 
minoritybook.com and ivypress.com. So um, yeah, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Thank you, Adrian. It's a great book. We're really thankful for it and for you on the, on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been great um, talking to you. Adrian, do you want to stick around and share something that's been fascinating you this week? Sure. So just anything that's kind of interesting? Uh, yeah. Sometimes, a lot of times it's pop culture things, or it could be something in the news, or yeah, really, almost it's, it's very wide open. So uh, yeah. Yeah. So let's see. So I'm, I'm watching this show called Better Call Saul. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I love that show. Did you all see the last episode? I don't want to. No, um, I'm no I haven't seen any of the current season because I didn't realize it was on. And now I'm like stressing. <laughs> yeah. So I, I love Breaking Bad. And I think this is its own show. You know, it amazingly pulled it off where it's different enough from Breaking Bad, but it's interesting enough in its own way. So I like it. I, I love the show. I watched the last episode. I won't give anything away. But I think that to me, the biggest thing about uh, the show is that at least what I've seen recently is that it's really about grieving has a lot of interesting things to say about grieving and how, when we can't grieve, it creates a ton of problems. So Mm. that's what I'm into. That's nice. Nice. Uh, Well, I'm going to break from form and choose a musical album. Um, Oh yeah. Hmm. One of my, one of my favorite artists is a guy named Matt Nathanson. He's a singer songwriter Mm -hmm. and he just dropped his, I think it's his ninth studio album and it's called sings his sad heart. And I subscribed to his newsletter, and when he released the album, he was like, look, I don't know what I'm processing right now because I feel like my life is great and things are like probably as good as they've ever been. But this whole album is all sad songs and like like breakup songs, songs about regret and remorse and like wishing you could go back and do things differently. Uh, but it's just really good. He's a really thoughtful lyricist. He's a really fun pop songwriter. Uh, his lyrics are always really fun and insightful and clever. So uh, yeah, Matt Nathanson sings his sad heart is uh, everywhere music is now. And what, uh, what's the genre? It's like, uh, like pop rock, like singer songwriter. Okay. Kind of. Yeah. I don't know. What'd you cool. say, Clay? You listen to him too. Uh, yeah. He's, he's not, I don't think pop puts the right picture of what he is, even though there is a little <laughs> element of that. I'm, I'm picturing Richard Marks. Is that right? Oh, yes. No. <laughs> no. He's a little more indie than that. A little more folksy. Okay. He's just right. really cool. fun. He has a couple of radio hits that you might not realize are him that have been around. He's been around for, again, a couple decades. So, uh, yeah, he's just really fun. And he's 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 also just like a really fun artist to follow. His live shows are really just some of the best times that you can have. He's one of those guys that just wouldn't rather be anywhere else than on stage performing. So yeah, he's great. That's cool. Clay, what do you got? Uh, My new favorite show of the week is called civilizations on Netflix. I am the resident uh, history documentary, I guess geek, but it is so good. So I don't know if you guys have ranked your top seven favorite documentary narrators and documentary hosts like my myself, but I've only seen like three documentaries. So no, we have not, Claire. We don't do those things. Um, yeah, what? well, this one happens to be narrated by Liev Schreiber, who is definitely one of my top three favorite narrators. Um, he's better known as Sabretooth in the Bad Wolverine movies. I was going to say he's an actual actor. <laughs> he, he's an actual actor who also does a ton of great voiceover work. Uh, but also, this is based on um, 
Kenneth Clark's work from the late 60s, and they've kind of brought it back for a new generation. So they are essentially looking at civil, human civilization through art. And what's even more exciting to me, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of Simon Shama, but Simon Shama is my favorite uh, documentary host. He's, he's British, but he's been in America for, I don't know, 25 years. Um, he did The Power of Art, which you can't find it almost anywhere, but it's one of the best documentaries ever. And he's one of three hosts on this, but they are doing a really great job of showing so many different cultures. And they theme the episodes. So, for example, episode three is all about how humans have artistically viewed God and the gods. <laughs> and they they show you in every episode the oldest known instance of whatever it is. So when did the culture of beauty first get put into art in a way that we still have an artifact today, something that's 35,000 years old? They'll go into that. And if it takes them to Africa or Cambodia or you know South America, wherever, um, they'll do a great job then of finding resident experts from those lands to talk in depth about it as well. So it's just wow. amazing. It's it's so so well done. It's my very favorite people to be making a documentary, and it's on Netflix now called Civilizations. Clay, I'm very interested, but I do have one question that's kind of make or break for me. Okay. Do they put Kansas City in the right context? <laughs> <laughs> so far, they have not mentioned Kansas City. I'm a little oh, no. concerned. Um, yeah. They also haven't mentioned it's, Korea yeah. yet. You know, so Jen and I are waiting oh, to no. see. I have a feeling they're not going to mention every single nation. They're just going where okay. the artifacts are and they're telling the stories as they go. But I've still got six episodes left. I can't wait. Okay. So the, it, there's still time. There's time for Kansas City. Okay, good. There's right. never time for Kansas City. What? <laughs> Kathy, you were posting about eating at a city barbecue. I don't oh, even want to hear it. You know what? I go where the Yelp elite is. Oh. <laughs> Uh, wow. Which, by the way, we need to dedicate a whole episode to your Yelp Elite status at some point in the near future. Because I yeah. Are you actually it's, Yelp Elite? I am. And it was something that my daughter actually put me up to because wow. she was following these, you know, the Yelp Elites and knew of these events. And she just said, Mom, I think you can do this. I think you eat and go to places enough and can write enough reviews. I think you can do this and then you can get invited to these cool things, which didn't help her because most of these events are 21 and older and she wasn't 21 at the time. So, uh, yeah, so that was, I aimed high in life to become a Yelp Yelp elite. Good job. And it was, it's been fun. Yeah. I 100% without any tiny hint of irony, love that you're Yelp elite and I'm super jealous. (laughs) <laughs> it's been fun. It's been super fun. Yeah. Is that and is that what's fascinating you, Kathy? No. Oh. It isn't. That's old it hat isn't. clay. She, She's been Yelp yeah. Elite for ages. Yeah, this is my fourth year as Yelp Elite. Except she so. doesn't have a ranking of her favorite documentary narrators. Uh, uh, do you know what Yelp she's is, not clay? Netflix elite I'm yet. kind of working through fun restaurant openings. Wow. I'm a little busy. Uh, But as far as what's (laughs) fascinating me this week, other than suburban barbecue at another mall that's opening up in my neighborhood, uh, The Walking Dead is back. Hmm. Really? And I know it's odd. Are you hate watching? What percentage of it is hate watching? 
No, it's not. It, it really isn't. I, I actually, <laughs> yes. I could not join in when it started. It was just too violent. And then I realized it was just so over the top violent and kind of funny, actually, <laughs> kind of the zombie makeup and all of that kind of stuff. But the the arc of the story and the characters and Carl, um, yeah, Coral, Coral, um, but Are darn it all! Carl? This past Sunday, Maggie, she was savage. <laughs> I was okay, like, I stopped watching like several seasons ago. Are, is this like something new? Like it's going somewhere new, or is more of the same? Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, one, they, you know, they, they kill off so many of the people of color. So they, I'm still wrestling with that whole aspect of the walking dead, but, and I forget which season was just so tedious. Uh, I think that was two through five. Okay. Stop. (laughs) Stop. I can't so you were wait you were particularly interested in Maggie. Maggie was like a fierce woman in this episode. In this episode, and uh, that's it, new. That's different. It's a little different now that she doesn't have that man holding whole, her down. <laughs> the, yeah, well, you know the Korean man that got killed, which was terrible and a bad move, but you know a good career move, but sad for me on a personal level. But Maggie, I think it was this sense of like, what does, what does taking the mantle of leadership look like? And does it look different for a woman and a woman who's had a baby? And, and are we okay with that when she does things that seem questionable? Yeah. So it was good. Are you suggesting that in our culture, we have different reactions to women who express power and oh, men who express power. Yeah, yeah, I know. Offensive. I know. It is. Hey, that so, makes me feel sad that you would say so that. So offensive. And if you want to be, if you want to feel sad, guilty, and maybe a little angry, you should jump on Instagram and see the T-shirt I'm wearing today. <laughs> <laughs> Which, what, dear listeners, um, you're today... You're going to have to tell us what it says, yeah. <laughs> today when you're says, listening, is last Wednesday. Well, it says, Lord, give me the confidence of a mediocre white man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yep. And, and for new listeners, I have worn this shirt to the airport on a Monday morning. On yes. purpose. So... Do you find that mediocre white men take offense to it? Yes, they do. It's so fun. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. The trap of the shirt. (laughs) If I am offended by it, then I'm admitting that I'm mediocre. (laughs) Yeah. Mediocre or less. (laughs) Yeah. I can't relate to that shirt because I'm not mediocre. Is it a trap? (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, mediocre white men are very bad at sensing traps. They just haven't been caught very often. Adrian, I, Adrian, I feel like you've just uh, pleading, ple- you're pleading the fifth here in this segment, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm a listener right now. I'm <laughs> Any thoughts about The Walking Dead or Mediocre White Men? <laughs> well, Speaking actually, of I, The Walking I, Dead. <laughs> no, I, I'm, half, I'm halfway through that uh, episode Candice is talking about, so. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Season one, actually, season one is pretty, pretty good, though. Right, Matt? Yeah. 
No, I liked season one pretty well. I mean, it started off strong with the killing of minority people, though. <laughs> um, yeah, seriously. Um, and I got to say, if we're talking mediocre white men, I feel like Rick is constantly held up as like, this is an amazing guy. Everyone should follow. Also, he's terrible. <laughs> oh, he's awful. Uh, He's, He's real awful. murdery and not completely sane and also not super moral, but he thinks he is. I'm just always like, oh, Rick, when you die, I will watch this show again. <laughs> well. I know. I heard rumors. Rumors. I've heard tales. Rumors Stop abound. <laughs> okay. I've got one real quick. Okay. I, uh, I love this book. It's so interesting, and it went to a much different place than I thought it was going to. It's called The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Lavelle came out a couple years ago and it deals it's a it's another book that talks about Lovecraftian cosmic horror from the point of view of a black man that's cool and which you know a lot of Lovecraft is super super racist uh and xenophobic really um yes shockingly (laughs) so I mean how dare they um, but unlike Lovecraft Country, which, you know, we've talked about endlessly on this show at different times, uh, this particular book takes a very different, uh, twist and the ending. I was, uh, yeah, I was kind of stunned by it, honestly. So anyway, the Ballad of Black Tom, I know it's a pretty narrow genre, but if you're interested in Lovecraftian cosmic horror that critiques issues of race in our history of science fiction and fantasy. It's a very interesting book. Uh, and, and beyond that, not just the thematic piece, it's actually beautifully written and uh, a really great story. So that's something to check out uh, real quick before we sign off. Is there anything from any of the five of us, something you're working on this week that we should be keeping our eyes out for? Well, I'll just give a real quick plug for JR because it's coming up on the one year anniversary of his book. Is It might be, the one year anniversary. And I actually am listening to the audio version, which I didn't do the first time around. And if you already bought it last year, because you're a listener of this podcast, you can buy the audio version for a super discount. So you should probably just go do that and re uh, examine the book and use it as like a chapter a day kind of thing for the month of October. Awesome. I did not record the audio book. So I find it very weird to listen to in a fun way. Do you know who did it? Who was the person who did it? It was no some. I mean, his name was it. The on- actor who played um, Sabretooth? <laughs> it was not. Well, look, if if Liev Schreiber was narrating Jr.'s book, I would have got a meet and greet out of that for sure. I don't know what Liev Schreiber's uh, <laughs> relationship with Christian book publishing audio is. Ah, oh, we'll have to look into that. Yeah, for the next. No, one. it wasn't. But thank you, Clay. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's been al- uh, uh, almost exactly a, a year since it came out. Here in another couple of weeks, so. Uh, Empathy for the devil no, I, for those who don't know. Yeah. 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 I have all your books on right next to me right here on this shelf here. So good books. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. <laughs> I don't actually, sadly. All right. I'll get just on that. Tw- I'll get on that. Just Twitter and Instagram. That's where we all are this week. Yes. Just strolling through some cool. airports. All right, cool. I, uh, I've got one new little thing. I've got uh, my, my second podcast, JR. Uh, I'm taking your example. It's called Welcome to the Sunlit Lands, and it's a scholarly study of the stories of the people of the Sunlit Lands. So that's, that's rolling out this week sometime. Um, okay, so you can find us all in our social media places. We will have links to that in the show notes, as well as links 
to Adrian's book, which we all know by now, the title of Adrian's book is The Minority Experience, Navigating Emotional and Organizational Realities. It's a great book, and it has excellent endorsements by multiple people from this podcast. So... (laughs) (laughs) so until next time that was episode 204 of the fascinating podcast join us next week when we'll be talking with henry lian the creator of the martial arts ice skating novel peace sprout chen future legend of skate and sword we'll see you then Boom. And now That's it's time great. for yoga. Yes. All right. This is great, y'all.